welcome to another edition of the Dugout Podcast here on WFI with myself, Andy Wills. Uh, this is, of course, the podcast that brings you uh, different viewpoints on a variety of topics from around the football world. Now, today's guest is someone who uh, I've been looking forward to speaking to um, for quite some time. Um, he is a German football expert, and he is also the author of the very excellent book, A Mensch Beyond the Cones. Uh, he is, of course, Mr. Jonathan Harding. So, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks so much for having me on. What a, what a lovely intro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I am available for hire on weekends, by the I was going to say, what are you doing on a weekend? I might have yes. to hire you. <laughs> Weddings, bar mitzvahs, I take them up. <laughs> Uh, now, Jonathan, obviously, yeah, you're a German football expert. You're based in Germany. Uh, cover the Bundesliga for, for a number of different outlets. Um, but before we get into that and get to talk about your book, just to start with a little bit of background on yourself. Now, I mean, you are a seagull, obviously, not literally, of course. <laughs> so, um, how does how does this Brighton fan make his way across to Germany and become a um, a well respected German football expert? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think being a seagull makes it easier to make that journey. Uh, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, um, I studied German at university. I studied German at school. Uh, when I was younger, I lived in Austria. I lived in Germany. I've always had a strong connection with uh, German-speaking countries and with the language itself. And uh, I was one of very few people to study German at university. Uh, I, I think there were only eight or nine other people on my course that studied it uh, as a major. Because uh, the demand for, for languages is, is sadly sinking. And I would hope uh, that anyone listening to this who wants to get involved in anything, really, uh, would take it upon themselves to study a language because it really does open so many doors, whatever it is you want to do. The opportunity to connect to a culture and a community through the language is uh, is a blessing. And I was able to, to use that to my advantage uh, to get a job straight out of university in Munich. And um, from there, I moved to uh, near Cologne about six years ago and I've been working from there uh, for various outlets ever since um, helped of course by Germany's World Cup win in 2014 but uh, yeah it's been a it's been an adventure but a, a pleasure all the same and um, your book Mensch Beyond the Cons I mean testimonies from uh, from someone who's quite well renowned as certainly uh, one of the most well-known um, German football journalists uh, of in the English-speaking uh, language, uh, Raphael Honigstein. So it must be nice to get them kind of testimonies. And um, how did how did the book come about, and what was the inspiration? When I first started writing about German football, I was so interested in in the day to day and and the weekends and the results and the teams. And I think after a while, you you sort of take a step back and try to look at the bigger picture. It seems like a, a natural cycle to to understanding what it means to write about football, to have the privilege of, of the position to be able to write about football and, and to give insight. And I, I realized that, you know, for such an iconic football country, uh, there hadn't really been that much literature uh, about the coaching. Obviously, you know, you spoke about Rafa there. His his book, Das Reboot, is a, is a fantastic book about how, why and how Germany got to the summit of football in 2014. And you know, I thought that's that's a great story of how Germany put themselves back on the map. But we were living in an age, I think, from from 14 or at least 13 onwards, it felt like where a lot of young coaches were getting opportunities. And it felt like Germany was suddenly not only the place 
where young players were developing, but also where young coaches were developing. And I thought it was perhaps an opportunity to shed some light on that. So um, I was fortunate of having the support of a, a great publisher uh, and a friend in, in David Hartrick, who is also a fellow Brighton fan. Um, and he, you know, he gave me a great amount of freedom to be able to explore the topic and, and a great amount of support. I will always be grateful for that. And I just took it upon myself to find out more about the people who were in the dugout because I think obviously people have different views on how influential coaches are. But personally, I think it's an incredibly difficult position. Um, I can't imagine what it must be like to go to work every day and have everybody watching you and everyone judging you. Uh, and also to, to lead a group of, of men or women um, who are in the limelight, who are in a, who are in a position of you know, extreme expectation is extremely difficult. And I wanted to, to shed some light on the stories of the individuals in question. Uh, what about the process of it then? Because uh, obviously, uh, I mean, I've got a copy myself and, and I'd say I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, such a good book. But, you know, it really is a deep dive. Uh, and there's so much in there in terms of, you know, the different conferences and everything like that. Uh, was it a long process in putting this all together? You know, did, was it difficult to get that access and... and uh, and, and you know, just simply to be there and and to witness some of these uh, these people speaking and and getting getting into the minds of some of these great people. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a bit of luck. I think whatever you do, you have to have a bit of good fortune. Um, I was fortunate to have support from some of the people I spoke to, and they believed in what I was writing about, and they gave me opportunities to speak to more people. And uh, you you have to get a little bit lucky and you have to hope that some of the people that you speak to um, will help you along the way. But that's obviously only possible if you approach it in a very human way. I've I've never considered myself uh, someone who's written about football, who is in it for headlines or who's in it for, for the latest news. I've always been one to try and take a bit more time over a story or a thought because I think that's really important. And so writing a, a book was was very much something that fitted that because I was able to take my time and speak to people and, and there was no rush per se. Um, that being said, obviously it takes a long time, takes a lot of edit, edits, takes a lot of reviewing um, and checking. And I was really grateful to have such a great team uh, of reviewers and editors um, that helped with the, with the publishing of the book. And uh, it was, it was a long process. I mean, it took three years uh, and it takes a long time to be able to get all that information in the first place. But then to put it into something coherent is obviously another part of the step. But, you know, access is not always easy as well. You're right to point that out. Some clubs are are interested in that. And I will say that as an individual writing a book, uh, clubs are less inclined to be able to to open their doors or to want to open their doors to you because, you know, you don't necessarily pose much of an interest for them. And that's no different in Germany than it is in England so you have to you have to have a bit of luck and as i say you have to have some good people along the way that will help you and i was fortunate to have that yeah did, did you get any uh, kind of some of the people involved thinking you know it, it would be good to to bring you in then and to to involve you and, and to get this kind of exposure as much as anything just to to kind of lift that lid a little bit you know just to let people see what is happening behind the scenes in Germany you know obviously like you said you know people see things like the World Cup winning team and the, they see these great coaches but just how they actually come about and the whole structure that's in place and the work that and development that goes into creating these coaches. Yeah, that was something I certainly wanted to do. I, I think I wanted to shed a bit more light on the people who are perhaps operating in the shadows because 
you know, as you say, uh, it's easy to talk about those coaches that are in the limelight and are making headlines, but there are a lot of people involved in the success of a football team or the success of football players on a Saturday afternoon. It's not just one. And I was fortunate to speak to some people who perhaps perhaps purposefully weren't being talked about because I think a lot of people were just really keen to focus on their work. I mean, you know, Lars Konecka, one of the guys in the book that I speak to is a perfect example of that. He's an extremely hardworking guy, uh, extremely innovative, very smart, but he's also someone who's very keen to just do the work. And he did tell me that he feels sometimes in football is such a shame that so much of it is spent or not so much, but too much of it is spent uh, in ways that are not directly linked to the football. You know, we're talking about vanity here or we're talking about ego. And I think that's a problem, you know, and, and I was very, it was, it was wonderful to speak to someone who had identified that as a problem and was certainly doing their best to counter that. And I, in a way, you know, at the time, obviously, you know, when you first set about doing something like this, you think, oh, I need all the big names, you know, how else am I going to sell the book and how else is it going to be interesting to people? But in a way, actually, as I did more work on it, I realized that it was of greater value to me to speak to people who were perhaps lesser known, but were maybe doing more important work. I, I just, I love that whole kind of that background structure of it. And again, that sort of delving beneath the surface. I mean, just the, the title itself, Mensch, I mean, that, that I believe you mentioned that before, that it, it does have, you know, that... It, that dual meaning, you know, you can kind of take it anyway. And that was, that was something in there, wasn't it? With the, the actual German language. Yeah, I did. And I mean, I'm a big fan of language and I think it's really important how we communicate with one another. We have to take more time sometimes to think about what we're saying. And I think in some respects, language is obviously something that evolves, but you know, we've got to be careful that we don't start to use words in the wrong way, or we don't start to use words so much that their meaning gets lost. And I, I think, you know, Mensch was, a, was definitely a conscious decision. It means obviously human being or person in German. Um, but there's another meaning there um, in Yiddish, which is, you know, also a, a question of a good person, you know, a person of, of, of great sort of moral standing, as it were. Um, that certainly does play a role in the choice of title. And also because Mensch is something in the German language that people will say, when they're frustrated, you know, like, oh, my goodness, they might say, oh, mensch. Um, and it, it, it fits so many different forms of what I was trying to, to do with this book, because really it's a word uh, that is about people. And in that respect, it's also very variable. Yeah, and I think probably the, the most prominent German coach, certainly at the moment, uh, Jürgen Klopp. I mean, there's there is a chapter there at the end on Jürgen Klopp. And again, human is, is a big element in, in his style, in his in his coaching career about his, you know, just his personality. It's, it's a very big thing of, with him as a coach, isn't it? Yeah. And obviously, you know, Jürgen Klopp has made an, a fantastic career for himself off his charisma uh, and who he is as a human being. Um, I think one of the most important things about Klopp is, uh, is that he is very authentic. And I think maybe one of the problems about him being the way that he is, is that I think a lot of people see that as the only way to be not successful, but the only way that a modern coach can now operate. I think there are very many different ways to be charismatic. And I also think there are very many ways to be the best person that you can be, as it were, you know, the best mensch, as it were. 
And I don't always think that for everyone that is to be someone who will you know punch their chest and jump up and punch the air and and shout in front of the cop uh, the cop and give it all of that i think some people have that in them and some people don't um what's interesting about klopp is that in many ways he's not very german and that was something that a couple of the coaches i spoke to said and i think what that's actually done is change the perspective not just internationally on German coaches but also for German coaches themselves because you know here's a guy who's wearing his heart on his sleeve who is very emotional who talks about political issues um, who, who's found a way to connect with a community and that's authentic again not everybody can do it the same way and I think the danger is that we get into a situation where people think well to be successful or to connect to a community I've got to show this emotion on my sleeve I think for the city of Liverpool, it's the perfect emotion. It's the perfect way to connect. It was the same in Dortmund. It was the same in Mainz. And you've got to find the community and the culture that reflect your personality. And I think a lot of coaches uh, don't always do that. But I think it's an underrated or an underestimated factor when taking a job or considering how successful you can be. Because your personality has to be a reflection of the job that you're taking. Because otherwise, it's going to be much harder to convince the community of the work that you're doing and to form that bond. And as we've seen a number of times at Anfield over the years or the last few years, you know, having that connection with that fan group. And I would say, you know, as someone who's not a Liverpool fan, so please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, Andy, but uh, Liverpool fans have been reinvigorated, maybe even resurrected to a certain degree under Jurgen Klopp. I don't remember them being as passionate or as vocal as they were in the years before. And I think that's certainly because of what he's been able to do. Yeah, as a Liverpool fan, I think you're absolutely correct, yeah. And it is a very much a, a German theme that you see on a regular basis in the Bundesliga after matches, you know, the 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 the, uh, the players going over and saluting the fans and it's um I I guess a little bit of that and it kind of married perfectly along with Klopp and that Liverpool crowd. Just one final thing then on on your book do you think it perhaps maybe um, in the process of writing it and researching it and, and going along that path, do you, do you think maybe it gave you a slightly different perspective on on the coaches when you're actually, you know, reporting on matches or or writing the opinion pieces on, on the day-to-day things in, in the Bundesliga? Definitely. I mean, I would have to be a robot to come out of that and not have a different perspective. I think speaking to people who who work with elite athletes on a day-to-day basis uh, and can tell me things and, and give me insights, gives me pause. Uh, I think I'm always, I think we should always be learning and, and trying to understand the game that we're lucky enough to write about on a regular basis. We should all be doing that more often. I'd like to think that beforehand I, I took into consideration all the time because I've tried to do that all the time that that everybody I'm watching is also a human being uh, and that is something that needs to really be remembered um, I think afterwards I had a much greater appreciation for the work of a coaching staff and the effort of all of the people involved in looking after the individual and the collective performance I certainly had a greater understanding of the difficulties that were in play and I think as, as someone who, who writes about football you know you you try to, to consider that in all of your in all of your work. Every time you sit down and try and analyze a situation, you always got to remember that there are a completely different set of factors at play, other than just uh, the score on the scoreboard. Mm-hmm. And uh, moving slightly across, then 
you, you did mention about, you know, that the German football has become synonymous with developing young players and developing young coaches. And, and two, two well-known coaches that have come through the ranks in, in recent years have been uh, Julian Nagelsmann and uh, Dominico Tedesco. Now, obviously Nagelsmann, great job at Hoffenheim, given the opportunity, seized it, did a great job, moved on to RB Leipzig and is looking very impressive there this season. Uh, Tedesco also given an opportunity at Schalke, great success in his first year, uh, perhaps almost a little bit too much success because <laughs> the next year, obviously a, a real struggle and ended up losing his job. I mean, how have you taken like, the, you know, the careers of these two, because it, it kind of shows, doesn't it? That, you know, that, given opportunities to young coaches, you know, not all of them work out. Uh, I guess like young players, you know, it's not always going to work out and it's, they're not always going to be the next big thing. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. You know, you can't always have successes and, you know, ironically, you know, there are a lot of coaches that never made it that we never heard of that potentially could have been great if things had been different. And I think that to some degree, you've got to take in the, the situation that both coaches were in. And look at Nagelsmann at Hoffenheim. He was in his element. He was surrounded by the kind of technology that he likes to use in his training. Uh, Hoffenheim was a very no-risk situation, really, at that point. The club knew that he was talented, but also, you know, were in a position where they could probably take a gamble, given that they don't necessarily have the largest support, but also they're not under a great amount of pressure to reach certain expectation. I think the, the thing with clubs like Hoffenheim is that really you don't, you don't have an expectation of making the Europa League or, you know, reaching a certain point in the table because every year in the Bundesliga is, is a blessing, right? So he's under no pressure there, which is an extremely beneficial environment to be in. And then when he makes the move to Leipzig, okay, the expectation rises a bit because he's done such a good job at Hoffenheim, but he's still surrounded by, the kind of technology that he had at Hoffenheim, which, you know, boosts his training ability. Uh, the facilities are excellent. He has, you know, no issues there. And he's also playing the type of football uh, that he has was playing at Hoffenheim with slightly higher tempo and with better players. So again, Nagelsmann is, is, a, is a, obviously a talented coach, but he's been helped in that regard by the environment in which he's operated. Tedesco, I think was partly to to blame in the sense that the football that he was playing at Schalke was extremely negative. Obviously, as you said, in the first season, it worked out in his favor, but he didn't necessarily adapt in the second season or if he did, he was too ambitious with the squad that he had. But Schalke, as you know, as, as a Bundesliga fan and, and someone who knows the league well, you know, it's, a, it's an extremely unique environment. The expectation there is unbelievable. There's a lot of pressure. The fan base is enormous. Uh, it's very intense. The club expects to be in the top four. The club expects to be uh, in the Champions League. It's, it expects to be as relevant as as they consider themselves to be. And, you know, there's no reason why they shouldn't be. At the time that Tedesco was in charge, the squad maybe wasn't as good as uh, as it could have been or should have been, maybe. But Schalke have had so many false dawns. You know, when they brought in Marcus Feinsung and Christian Heidel, everybody thought that Schalke would be reborn. They thought the same would be true at Tedesco. They thought the same would be true under David Wagner now. And obviously the jury is still out on that one. So I think on one hand, yes, young coaches can't always be great. And so some of them just won't be as great as we think they will and will go on to different clubs. But on the other hand, I think some coaches, especially young coaches, are still figuring out what it is that they're good at and where it is that they excel. And not all of them get the benefits of being backed or supported by their environment because 
it's very easy to look past the benefit of of an environment or a culture but they play enormous roles in the success that you have because you know it's uh, it's a sport built on tiny margins and if if Dominica Tedesco was in a different club with less expectation more backing and uh, slightly better players who knows I guess the thing is as well is that the way the German football's moved in recent years is uh, it's quite a regular over you know turnover of um, of head coaches managers whatever you want to call them so uh, opportunity in the future for Tedesco to perhaps rebuild his career would surely come because I mean there's you know you look around and the likes of Marcus Gitzel is you know, how multiple uh, clubs <laughs> amongst yeah. others. So opportunities, no doubt, will come for him. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I think you're right. I think there's a, there's a it's a double-edged sword, though. I mean, you know, obviously, if you if you decide to promote and look after and give opportunities to young coaches, um, but at the same time, you're not giving them long enough to really prove themselves, then it's difficult. Uh, you know, you've got to be careful with the with the line that you take there. And obviously, Veda Bremen are a great example of a club right now who totally believe in their coach, and yet they're slowly wandering into a situation where maybe they're too relaxed about the fact that they are facing relegation. So it's very difficult. You know, Florian Kofod is obviously a talented coach, but has he stopped adapting? Has he lost a bit of the magic that he needs to be able to do his job properly? You know, are, is he just unlucky with injuries? Um, are his players underperforming and letting him down? There are a number of factors that contribute to the ability of a head coach or at least if not the ability the perspective of the ability because I think that's partly the issue how does the world see the coach and I think for coaches it's the hardest part you have to rebuild your image if uh, if part of your career goes wrong you know and, and Tedesco is having to do that now uh, in Russia uh, and good luck to him um, I guess going from you know these younger emerging coaches to um, someone who is a German football legend. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Jürgen Klinsmann, a legendary player, obviously as a national team manager, uh, head coach, did quite well. As as the head coach of Bayern, not so well. Um, <laughs> reputation has perhaps um, been tainted in recent years, uh, certainly in America, not always uh, seen quite as positively uh, as he was maybe uh, 15, 20 years ago. Return to Hertha Berlin and his stay there was a brief and unsuccessful one. Yes, I think that's a polite way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's so much to say. And again, you can talk about environment and culture and Hertha Berlin changing and trying to be this big city club that everyone's talking about and spending a lot of money in January uh, and their ambition to get you know back to the Champions League and be relevant again. I think it's very ambitious. Uh, I think it's, you know, not a problem if you want to do that. Maybe don't vocalize it in the public and raise external expectation. Uh, I think it's also maybe appropriate to take these things step by step. You know, you're a side that looks very much like it's going to be in a relegation battle. Maybe those are not now is not the time to make those kind of announcements. Um, I think so. That all plays a role. I think Klinsman didn't help himself, and I think that's partly where the problem started or at least intensified. Uh, I think the thing that stuck out for me is that the manner of his departure suggests quite a, an egotistical step from a head coach. Obviously, he's aware of, of his legendary status, as you mentioned. You know, he's obviously a, a legend in German football. But I think he may have lost touch of, of what it takes uh, to be a coach in 2020, um, in 2019, in, in a modern era. Because anyone who who decides to to depart in from a club 
without really talking to the club uh, to involve himself on on you know on, on social media i can understand that he wants to control the narrative but there are more professional ways to to handle the situation it suggests a lack of communication you know some of the stories you hear suggest he was using the situation he was in uh not necessarily for the for the strength or the best of the team i don't think he did a good job in really recognizing what the team needed. And I think Hertha deserves some blame for thinking that he could do that, thinking that, you know, he was a name and he was a star power. Because in signing him, it's obvious to me that they didn't find a coach that fit the team. They found a coach that made headlines. And I think so long as teams appoint coaches that are names, that are famous, that have, people have heard before, and they don't appoint coaches that fit the philosophy or the culture of the team, or reflect the values of the community, they will have an uphill battle and they will more likely fail than be successful. Now, you can have another conversation about whether clubs even have a philosophy in place, and that's another issue. But if there is one there, and a club is aware of its connection to the community, and it's aware of its surroundings, and it's aware of what it it values, and it still chooses to appoint a coach that maybe is in opposition to that, because they have a name, then I think the club deserves some blame as well. But um, Klinsman certainly didn't cover himself in glory. That is for sure. Uh, yeah, and I think it make him make it quite difficult for anybody else to consider appointing him in the future. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it does it does beautifully uh, move on to my next question, which would be, you know, Hertha Berlin, like you said, you know, it's a Berlin capital city, massive, fantastic city. How how do Hertha? unlock this this potential that they have you know to be a big club in germany because it's almost unthinkable really isn't it uh, germany that this 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 huge country with with so much vibrancy it, yet its capital berlin does not have really a top team well i mean i'm sure union would have something to say about that but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and it's ironic that the team that has just been promoted uh is showing her to how to do it. And I think if we're really honest, obviously Union are not going to win any titles, but it looked pretty likely that they're going to stay in the Bundesliga this season, which is an enormous uh, credit to, to Urs Fischer and the team there. They have understood their philosophy. They have understood the culture. They have understood how to play. They've understood what it what they need to do. They've bought the right players. They made smart signings. And they've always stayed true to, to their values. And I think... In many ways, Hertha could probably learn a lesson or two from looking at how Union have done that. Um, what Hertha need to do is figure out what they stand for. They probably need to open up a dialogue with their fans and have a, a greater conversation about the direction that they want to move in. I'm always slightly concerned, especially in Germany, when an investor comes along and throws a lot of money at something. Um, I don't know whether that's really a model that has a place here. I don't see that as being something that has any any longevity. And I would have grave concerns as a Hertha fan if, if, if the people in charge of the club that I supported thought that that was a solution. I think Hertha, you're right, they do have great potential. They have an opportunity to tap into uh, their audience, their fan base. They have to understand how to connect with them. They have to understand what they stand for. Uh, I think it's great that they... <laughs> They come up with all of these different slogans. You know, we try, we fail, we win. But actually, that's not important. You need to figure out what's what's important inside the club. You need to bring together a group of players that really represent the values that you've put in place. You need to bring a coach that plays the type of football that you want to play. And all of those things need to be aligned. And I think a lot of them are not aligned at the moment. And I think if 
if Lars Windhorst thinks that he can do that quickly and with money, that could also be problematic. Um, you know, it's going to take time. But if they put the time in and they put the work in, then there's no reason why we couldn't see two extremely vibrant clubs in the German capital. But there's a long yeah. way to go. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I, I think, you know, that authenticity and that identity that you speak of. I mean, Union, without, without doubt, Union have that. They have that in abundance. And it, again, you watch them and the atmosphere, it's a place you want to be. It's it's one of them grounds mm. you want to you want to go and visit, you want to be a part of that. You don't kind of get that feeling with Hertha, you know, half empty stadium. And I've got to say as well, you know, over the past few years, Hertha have been a pretty miserable team to watch when they play football. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem. Obviously, there's a big chat about the stadium and the fact that they want to move, but if we're honest, what's the justification for building a stadium next door to the one that they already have? I understand that it's a difficult situation because you're not going to fill it out, um, but then you need to make that part of your identity and you need to own it. And, you know, There's a lot of fans there that really care deeply about the club. Um, they know what they think that this club should stand for. They know that they go every Saturday and that they care. Um, as much as I'm sure, you know, I can understand the frustration, as I say, about the lack of a stadium that would create a more intimate or intense environment uh, and atmosphere, you know, you've got to do the best with what you can, uh, with what you have. And I just don't feel like Hertha are doing that. And as you say, obviously, there's no reason to give this team a new stadium, especially on on the performances on the pitch, because... You know their recent outing against Cologne was uh, was beyond uh, acceptable. It was just awful, beyond unacceptable. It was it was dreadful. I, I would imagine they'll avoid relegation, but they again, they, you know, they spent a lot of money. But like you said, there's they've bought players, but they're still searching for an identity, and you know, perhaps need to have a real good think in the summer as exactly where they're going. I mean, you know, in terms of unlocking their potential. It is does it start with perhaps like a sporting director and laying down exactly what they want the club to be and how they want the team to play and then f finding the right coach for that? Yeah, I think so. I think they need greater structure. They definitely need, uh, I don't know, Michel Pritz is, is going to have to take some responsibility. I think, you know, there are certainly bold steps that could be taken. You know, they've gone through quite a few coaches. And I think once you go through quite a few coaches and the sporting director has stuck around, maybe you need to ask some questions of his position. I think they, they just need to find a coach that fits with what they're about. And ironically, I think that was was and probably still could be for a long time, Pal Dardai. Bringing him back you know, could be an option, but I think it's always difficult to come back when you've been successful in the past. There's a lot of talk about bringing someone like Niko Kovac in, of course. I just don't know. They have to figure out who whoever they bring in. Their structure has to be there. You know, You can't just bring in a big name and expect it all to click. Everything else has to be in place from the top down, from the bottom up. It has to go both ways. I just think the club need to, really, this club wants to get this season over and done with. They need to get to the end of the season. They need to get to the summer. They need to get rid of the deadwood uh, in the club and on the pitch uh, in terms of players who are not performing, um, staff members who are problematic, whoever isn't going to tie into the new philosophy going forward. And um, maybe even make some radical changes. Maybe Monsieur Pritz, you know, should no longer be in a position that he's in. But whatever they do, they need to to do it with a plan. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so moving kind of, I, I guess, back into the the whole kind of coaching theme of things. Then uh, the German national team, uh, we're we're fast approaching the Euros. There there aren't too many um, international breaks left. And and I guess fresh in 
you know, fresh in everyone's memory is, uh, what would you call it? Capitulation? I mean, <laughs> is that is that not a strong enough word for, yeah. for, for Germany's performance at the, the last World Cup? You know, I mean, capitulation is a good word, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel that um, complacency was probably a very apt word when I when I watched them they were so ponderous it was almost as though you know they were the world cup winners and they were a tournament team they're historically a tournament team they they just had to turn up at the world cup and everything would click and everything would be okay on the pitch but it was the complete opposite of that wasn't it yeah i mean that's uh, to my surprise that was something that i think uh, some of the players and the coach even admitted Afterwards, I think they thought that they would turn it on and uh, they didn't. And I think a lot of this goes back to winning the World Cup. I think when Germany won the World Cup in 2014, it was obvious that they didn't have a plan for what happened after that because they'd spent the previous 14 years planning for that. And that's fine. But I think you needed to have one in the back of your mind. Uh, The moment that that tournament started, there needed to be someone at the at the German FA at the DFB making those decisions or at least coming up with those ideas because what they did I don't mind that Joachim Löw was given you know the Euros I think that's perfectly understandable Germany played quite well in that tournament they were unlucky uh, they got beaten by a good French team in a good game that could have gone either way uh, and I think at that point I think it was clear that the journey the, I hate that word, but really that progression, the cycle with Lerv was over. Um, he had taken them to the top. They'd won the players that had come through had peaked and, and now their careers were declining or over everything that had been done with the introduction of academies, you know, it brought Germany to that, that peak. And then Germany didn't react. And I think complacency across the board. And part of the problem is that Joachim Löw, I don't think personally, was surrounded by enough people that could challenge him. And I think what the DFB did was unnecessarily give him an extremely large contract extension before the tournament. They backed themselves into a corner. Uh, They didn't surround him with people that I think could really push him uh, in the ways that I think international coaches need to be pushed. There wasn't really a fresh impetus. Uh, Thomas Schneider didn't work. Marcus Sorg was just a step up from the staff. I said it at the start of this season, I think Hansi Flick was the best signing that Bayern Munich made all year. And I think he was one of the main reasons that Germany won the World Cup in 2014. He is probably one of the great underestimated or underrated football minds of the, in the country. And, you know, you, when, you don't, when you lose someone like that and you don't bring in someone who can provide the level of exchange that Love will need, you basically create a situation where Love is all powerful. And under Reinhard Grindel, I just don't think that he he was the right president, the former president of the German FA. He wasn't the right person to challenge Love. Um, I'm keen to see uh, whether the new DFB president um, Fritz Keller, I think uh, his name is, um, if you if he's the right person because he's also from Freiburg. Now you've got the Freiburg connection. Obviously, Love played there as a player. It's it's problematic in many regards. And I think, you know, Keller hasn't helped the situation already by saying that he expects Germany to make the semifinals at the current Euros in, in 2020. I think that's a deeply problematic statement to make, given the state of the team and Love. So you can track it all the way back. Um, and I think the DFB is now paying for the decisions that they didn't make after winning the World Cup. And you're right. That is 100 percent because of complacency. 
So, I mean, you mentioned like uh, Hansi Flake and again, I guess that ties in nicely with the book and, and the work you've done in that, that, you know, the perhaps underappreciated people behind the scenes and, and just kind of looking into that then and, and all the, the exposure you had to, to the, the thought processes uh, and everything that's kind of going on behind the scenes that forms these or, or the, the coaching network within Germany then. I mean, do, do you actually believe that, that Yogi Love has accepted that there's a need for him to adapt and evolve as a coach? I know that that willingness to to look inwardly, to evaluate yourself and, you know, and look at your decisions. You know, you in the book... You talked about that and how they look at that. Do you, do you think that's actually a part of what Yogi Love does, or do you, do you feel he's maybe not even looking at that? You know that he's placed himself above that. I don't know whether Love um, does enough of it, but I think that he has done more of it lately than he did in the past. His squad selection, his decision to move away from senior players, um, his decision to at least acknowledge and recognize that going into Russia to play the se- and playing the same football that they played in Brazil was a mistake. And since then, to get Germany playing slightly different football is a sign or a suggestion that he has recognized uh, that he needs to do more evaluating. However, it's such a complicated conversation. Uh, I think a lot of fans don't want to see him in the job anymore. The realistic or the, the you know, the problem is that he is. And uh, Germany have uh, played themselves into this corner. There is no one else uh, to do the job. Um, I think after this European Championships, I'm very keen to see whether he continues. I personally don't think he should. But given that he seems adamant on taking Germany through the next cycle. It's very possible that he stays until Qatar. Um, If that's the case, then he'll have to be given the benefit of the doubt unless uh, things change dramatically on the pitch. The biggest problem for me is that Germany at the moment don't seem to quite know whether they want to be a possession-based side, whether they want to be a reactive side, you know, working well in transition. You saw it in some of the games against the Dutch that they looked perfectly capable of playing that way. Uh, they obviously swatted away, you know, some smaller nations in an expected fashion, and there's not really much to be taken from those games given the gap in quality of individual players. But I'm really keen to see how they do this summer because, you know, I I have my hesitations, I have my reservations uh, about this side and uh, the cycle that they're on, and that's why I think that Fritz Keller's comment is deeply problematic. I don't think that Germany finishing the top two top two in their group uh, obviously they have a tough group tough group with uh, france and portugal but i see france and portugal much further on in their development you know the interesting thing will be to see whether france make the same mistakes that germany made after they won the world cup uh, because you know great sides have to learn the lesson that you cannot be uh, complacent at the greatest moment of success and germany are in a different cycle uh Love has to recognize that. I hope they spent the last 12 months um, trying to get Germany right, 18 months trying to get Germany playing a different way. Uh, the Euros for me are, are the tournament to prepare Germany for the 2022 World Cup, where I think they will be preparing to win the 2024 European Championships in Germany. My question would be whether they have planned it that way. I'm sure that they are thinking short term and they think that they should win everything. But I think the smarter approach uh, in my extremely unqualified position 
would be to take it more long term. The current crop of players is not where they need to be to make a semi-final. Germany are not one of the favourites for this tournament. They're not as good as the Netherlands or France or England. And that's okay. Because the current group will learn from this experience so long as you, you know, taking a step forward visibly in the type of football that you want to play. They'll set themselves up for Qatar 2022 where you could potentially look at making the quarterfinals or the semifinals with a bit having, you know, had a bit more experience with this group. So that when the tournament comes back to Germany in 2024, you win it. And I think that's, a, a to me, it seems like a very obvious uh, progression, whether Germany make that or whether Löw is still there or whether Löw is open enough to, to to bring about the change that's necessary. You know, that's obviously something that remains to be seen. Yeah, it's more the long-term planning than the Hertha Berlin planning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the likes of, uh, you mentioned, you know, that obviously the, the squad has changed from that 2014 World Cup winning team. The likes of Fumuls, Botang, Müller, uh, they're, they're prominent names that have gone. How, if if Germany are to do well at these Euros, though, I mean, how do, how do they make the most of some of the young talent that they have in the likes of Kai Havertz, Julian Brandt, Timo Werner, uh, Leroy Sané, Serge Gnabry? Because... The thing that stuck out for me watching the World Cup was just how slow and one pace Germany looked. They looked mm. like there was there was nothing, despite the fact that they have some very fast players. That as a as a team, it seemed so slow and predictable the way that they played that it was easy to restrict them and defend them and shut them out and stop them. You know how how did Germany make the most of some of these you know really exciting attacking talents that they have? Well, they've got to play faster. You're absolutely right about that. Um, I think one of the things that they've tried to do in some of their games recently is to is to really make the most of those, you know, nine to ten seconds after they've won the ball. And you only have to look at Love's squad selection to realise that he's put a lot of emphasis on pace. Um, he wants to pick quick players. I think that's one of the reasons why the likes of Thomas Muller and Jerome Berting and Mats Hummels are not included anymore. You know, I I obviously don't know the reasons because I wasn't involved in the phone call between the two people but I can't help but think that that is also a decision to move away from uh, a certain atmosphere in the team um, you're taking away three players there that have won the World Cup um, that are very dominant figures in German football at one time they were all playing for the same team Germany's biggest team Bayern Munich uh, I think that there will be three personalities that are no longer in the team uh, for better or for worse uh, is only something that Löw can decide. But he has made a swift decision that I think changes the atmosphere of the team. And I think that's where I think Löw now has to be given some support because he's made a decision to move the team forward in the cycle. There will obviously be arguments to be made. Mats Hummels' performances are great. Germany have problems in the centre of defence. Why is he not bringing Hummels back? Um, Muller's been in sensational form surely he has something to offer for Germany but I think it's deeper than that and I think the change that, that Löw has made is obviously one towards a younger generation a different type of player a faster player but also a different type of atmosphere what he's trying to, to do I think is, is remove uh, too many people who suffered in Russia and were also then you know successful in Brazil because what you end up with in Brazil is uh a group of players who've won everything and it's hard to motivate that group afterwards. So um, what you do now is you create a new group, a different cycle, and you try to show that where you're moving forward uh, is 
is in a different direction. You need players who are hungry. You need players who are motivated, who haven't won tournaments before. Um, I would build a team around Kai Havertz. Uh, I think he's probably the most exciting player to come out of Germany since Mario Götze first emerged. That's Love's challenge. He's got to get the most out of him. If Leroy Sané gets back to fitness, obviously he's a player that has the ability to beat players in one-on-one situations. That's a skill that is missing in Germany. That's one of the reasons why Jaden Sancho is so successful over here. Um, because he has the skill set that not very many German players do. I would make Julian Brandt and Emre Chan uh, a big part of the team going forward. But let's be honest, Germany's midfield is full of riches. Uh, you've got to balance Ilkay Gundogan in there. You've got to balance Toni Kroos. Uh, I would not play Joshua Kimmich in that role. I would play him as right back, but I would make him captain. There are decisions that he has to make going forward. Uh, I, you know, Ter Stegen versus Neuer. Uh, I think it's very interesting that he he decided to 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 drop uh, Muller. Hummels and Boateng, but keep Mamor Neuer, his captain. Uh, Neuer's form has obviously been excellent this season. There's reason for keeping him in the team, but you know, you've got to feel sorry for Mark Under Testagen, who's probably played the best two or three seasons of his life in the last few years, and is certainly a footballer that is very good with his feet as well. So there are a lot of decisions that he has to make. Uh, I think he'll make ones based on speed, he'll make ones based on on not on youth per se, um, but certainly on a younger generation with the right linchpins. I would make Leon Goretzka one of the leadership team or a captain as well with Joshua Kimmich. Um, I think he's such an important player, but also the character and the type of person he is in the public eye, I think is necessary for this team going forward. I think we live in a time now where we need footballers to stand for something. We need them to be vocal. We need them to use their platform. Uh, he's certainly one that has done that more in recent weeks and he's accepted that role and he's keen to do it. He's keen to demand more from others. I think this Germany team certainly needs that. That's the identity it can have moving forward. Um, you've got to re- bear in mind that this Germany team is, uh, even if they don't consider it, you know, their image is still a team that's picking up, as you say, from a terrible tournament in Russia, but one that was also uh, haunted somewhat by the the headlines with, with Ilkay Gundogan and Meza Ozil, and the damage that was done to the, to the German national team and the image of German football during that time is something that this team has to rebuild whether they like it or not, whether they think it's their responsibility or not. So it's an extremely difficult task uh, for the same head coach, but for any head coach, really, and for this group of players. But it is possible. The quality is obviously there. I'm sure people will be keen to point out that they're not great defensively, but the only way to get better is to to pick players and move forward uh, and to to give them the chance to grow because there's one thing you can't substitute, and that is experience. Yeah, just one final one then. It's a name that, again, he's attacking talent, but he's not synonymous with pace. But I, I think with all these quick um, attacking players around him, I, I kind of feel that Kevin Folland would have been the ideal foil for, for the likes of Timo Werner, for Nabri, for Sane, mm. you know, to exploit the, the space that he creates and the work rate, what he will put in up front. And I think, I do feel like he's really developed... In, in the last couple of years at, uh, at Leverkusen. I mean, news came out today as we record this that unfortunately he, he's going to be out for some time. Um, did you feel that he was ever going to be in consideration for, for a place? Sadly, I think not. Uh, I think Love has always been stubborn over his selection. Um, I'd like to think that he would have been forced to pick him if Fallon had stayed fit and kept his form up. You know, as you say, he was he was playing very well and I certainly think that as as a character, he offered so much. As you say, it's been over three years since he last won a cap, you know. And yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a complete, well, I say a completely different player, but he's certainly matured and developed as a player since then. It, 
Absolutely. Um, and I think you're right to say that he's found the right spot to do that at Leverkusen. I, I wish he'd stayed fit. I wish that we wouldn't have to have the conversation about what might have been. Um, because I think if he had been playing, I think he would have had the opportunity to force Lerv's hand. Um, whether or not he would have, the, the, the head coach would have made that decision, I don't know. As I say, I think it's unlikely given how stubborn he is over selection. But it would have been great to see a player that really offers Lerv something different in an attack. There's a pretty big problem with strikers in Germany at the moment. There's a dearth of, of options, really. Um, and I think Folland offered something different. You're right. You know, he, he works extremely hard. I think as a character, though, he offers something different. You know, he's worn the armband for Leverkusen this season. I think he's matured. He's become a dad. He's apparently a very funny guy. He cares a lot about his teammates. He won't score you a lot of goals, but I think in this Germany team that doesn't matter because goals will come from other sources. And if we're honest, Timo Werner has always been best out on the wing anyway. So, you know, you can get goals from him, cutting in from the side, and then you you have another option. But alas, that won't be one that Germany will have this summer. And, you know, maybe that means that Marco Royce can play a more prominent role. Maybe maybe someone else, maybe Serge Nabry will continue his fine form. But it is a shame because he was a player that offered something different and that's the kind of thing you you might need moving forward. But sadly, I don't think he'll be involved. No, it is a real shame. I, I do kind of feel that he could have been just that that something something different, you know, creating that almost like like the what Roberto Firmino has has done with Liverpool in redefining that number nine role. Yeah, you know, I think Folland perhaps offers that something would have offered that something different for 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 Germany. And again. You know, where Firmino doesn't necessarily score that many goals or even get that many assists, what he does in facilitating Sadio Mane and Mo Salah is perhaps ideal for, for you know, like you say, Timo Werner, Serge Nabry, you know, and Kai Havertz, you know, how they would enjoy. I mean, certainly I'm sure Kai Havertz and um, and Julian Brandt would be able to wax lyrical about um, the, the joy of playing off uh, Kevin Folland. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I think it was last season. I think it was Havertz who had something like twenty goals or something. I can't. Maybe I'm I'm being extremely generous there, but I think it was def- it was definitely double digits, and I think that's partly because of of working with Folland. I know there's really something to be said about the understanding that players can have between one another, and obviously Havertz, Brandt, and Folland will all know each other from Leverkusen, and there's a lot to be said about what might have been with that with with those three had they been in the same team, and I think you're right. Work rate, you know, is is something that is definitely necessary uh, at any level of football or in any any situation, of course. But having a player like that that would do more for the team, you know, he's not really a spectacular goal scorer. He's not really someone that's going to get you 20 goals a season. But I think offering something that effectively confuses the defence because you're thinking, well, this is Germany's leading striker. We should probably deal with him. But he's not going to score goals so what do we do and now we've got Brandt you know Nabry, Sane, Harvats all running at us and we don't know who to pick up so you leave Folland and in that situation then he can score so yeah it's really a shame because I think he was putting forward a really compelling case to be selected and uh, obviously I you know I think even if he had been fit Love would have looked the other way because that just seems his his style but um it's a shame that he won't be able to play and uh, prove his worth all the same. Yeah, I, I think it is a real, real shame. But um, hey, who knows? I mean, depending on how the summer goes, he he may well get his opportunity early next season. Uh, <laughs> anyway, look, Jonathan, I, I've got to say 
massive thank you for coming on. Uh, I mean, I could I could sit here for hours and pick your <laughs> brains and, <laughs> and listen to you talk about German football, but uh, that would be unfair. You do have a life to lead. <laughs> Um, but I do want to say, honestly say a, a massive, massive thank you for coming on. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and well worth the wait. Oh, thank you, Andy, for those kind words. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk about German football. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Uh, hopefully we can do it again in the not too distant future. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, before we go, though, um, whereabouts can people catch you? Social media, um, any of your latest work you maybe you'd like them to uh, take a look out for? and And of course the book where is it available i'm on john blog 66 on on twitter and instagram um mostly on twitter really i just if you are interested in german football i'm part of a very good community fortunate to be part of a good group of of people covering the game over here in germany and um feel free to join the debate it's uh, it's always fun the book is available on amazon or ockley uh, but um ockley books that's o-c-k-l-e-y that's the publishing house and um yeah, it's always good to to support um, local, yeah, local publishing houses or, or local uh, industry. So uh, if you had to pick one of the two, I'd always say go to Ockley rather than Amazon. But if Amazon's your your bag, then then it's on there as well. Absolutely, uh, do do go check it out. I, honestly, I can pay testament. It is uh, it's an excellent book, and I and I I've got to say as well, I love the cover. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm very fortunate to have had a great design team on that. And I think it, the great thing about it is it's uh, it's a great book to have on the coffee table, even if you never read it. So I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. appreciate that. Great homage to 1990 there. Exactly. Uh, and we've covered Jürgen Klinsmann. I mean, we've just we've just covered everything there. <laughs> uh, so as I say, yeah, my, my thanks to Jonathan for his fantastic insight. And uh, my thanks to all of you for for downloading and listening to the show Uh, the dugout will be returning in the uh, near future Uh, but until then from myself Andy Wales here on the WFI it is bye bye now